Morning church. Uh, today I'm going to be reading from Psalm 57. It's about prayer for safety from enemies. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. My heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory, awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches unto the heavens, and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, and just to welcome Graham up, let's pray for Graham as he brings God's word to us. <clears throat> Father, we just ask that you would anoint Graham now with your Holy Spirit as he brings your word to us, and that every word that comes from his mouth would be from you, Lord, and that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear your word, and that it would grow in our lives and bear fruit. Amen. We rejoined David again this week in the cave of Adullam. If you were here uh, about three weeks ago, I think it was now, maybe longer, we were in Psalm 34. And now we are here again, back in the book of Psalms, and we're in the same place. We're in Adullam's cave. And so my sermon title today is Hymns from Adullam's Cave. It felt like it was the right thing to do to continue on in this particular season of David's life and see what the Lord might give us as we study together this passage of Scripture. We're looking at the time in David's life when he fled from Saul. That's what the very first verse of this psalm says. In fact, it's part of the psalm itself. People call it the superscription. It's what you read when it says, a psalm of David according to do not destroy a mictum, we don't really know what that word means, but a mictum of David when he fled from Saul. That's actually part of the psalm. And we pick that story up in the book of 1 Samuel. In the book of 1 Samuel, in verses 1 and 2, it says, David departed from there, meaning from Gath. He fled from Gath. If you remember, he went to Gath running from Saul and made a bit of a silly decision. Because who else came from Gath? Do you remember? Goliath, the giant, was a citizen of Gath. This was his hometown. And David ran to Goliath's hometown 
seeking refuge. Moreover, he carried with him Goliath's sword that he had used to chop off Goliath's head. Talk about a red flag to a bull. And so God gave David deliverance from his own foolish idea. How many of you understand that that is what grace is all about, that God frees us from the trouble that we ourselves get into? It's a good word, isn't it? I shared my own personal story a few weeks ago about how I always struggled with the idea that God would save me from messes that I had gotten myself into. I could understand how God might save me from trouble that was coming upon me from someone else. I could understand how God might deliver me if it wasn't my fault, but I struggled to understand how God would have a heart to deliver me if it was my own stupid fault for the mess I'd gotten into. You know those messes that you yourself make? Yeah? Well, God delivers from those kinds of messes. That's what that tells me. So David has fled from Gath, and 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2 says he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, that was a cave in the region of southern Judea. It's a wasteland. It's a wilderness. It's a barren place. And these caves are not like the kinds of caves that you might see here up in the Shropshire Hills. These are vast caves, interconnected caves out in the wilderness. And it says, when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him there. Now, why did his family leave their places of comfort, leave their homes and flee to be with David in a cave? Why would they do that? Exactly. When David got himself into trouble, he also got his family into trouble. It was the practice, of course, in those times, just as they did with uh, those who... Um, conspired against Esther, uh, Haman. It wasn't just Haman who was hung, it was all of his family, wasn't it? And it wasn't the enemies of Daniel alone who were thrown into the lion's den, but it was them and all their families. David's family was in danger. And so they fled, they fled to be with him there in the cave of Adullam. And it says that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. Remember that this is who we now know as David's mighty men. Men who were bitter in soul. (coughs) And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. This is a low point in David's life. This is an ebb moment of David's life. The tide had seemingly washed out upon the shore of his life. The blessings of God, the promises of the prophet Samuel about him being king seemed ever so distant at this particular juncture in David's life. How many of you understand that there are seasons in life? There are times when it is very easy to remember the promises of God. And there are times when it is very challenging. There are times, seemingly, when it is easy to give praise and glory and triumph in the name of God, and there are times when it is very difficult. That was evident in the life of David. It's evident in the life of every saint in all of your Bible, cover to cover. There are seasons in life, and this was a difficult season 
for David. And yet, this is a psalm of triumph. This is a psalm of victory. This is a psalm of praise. A hymn of praise from the cave of Adullam. In fact, the inscription of this psalm is, Let your glory be all over the earth. That's the inscription. That's the line you're supposed to remember. It appears once at the end of the first half of the psalm in verse 5, and then it repeats in verse 11 at the end of the psalm. Be exalted. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. Is that not a song of praise? Is that not a song of victory? Is that not a shout of triumph? But given in one of the lowest ebbs of David's life, how is it that the man can sing a song of triumph from the pits of despair? I believe that the greatest men and women of God are founded in the crucible of struggle. I believe that the most valuable pearls in your life are created in moments of trial. Charles Spurgeon said, the Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. The Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. How many of you have heard of the name Corrie ten Boom? You've heard of Corrie ten Boom. I wonder, would you know that name? Would you know that name at all if it had not been for the fact that she had been incarcerated at Ravensbrück concentration camp. I doubt that anyone here in this room today would know the name of Corrie ten Boom were it not for the fact of her trial, were it not for the reality of her struggle. She and her sister led hymns of praise, songs of triumph, in a place where there was such evil, such violence, such hopelessness. There, they lit that place up, didn't they? They lit that dark place up with prayers of thankfulness and songs of triumph and shouts of praise. And David himself turned this dank cave into a cathedral as he poured out his heart in prayer and praise to the living God. Let your glory be all over the earth. Be exalted, O God. I believe that David here is a picture and a, a type, a foreshadow of Christ Jesus for us. As David cried out in the cave, what else do we picture? We picture Christ pouring out his heart in that dark garden of Gethsemane. The night before he went to the cross, where was Jesus? He was in the garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart in prayer. Christ's trial, Christ's suffering was marked by prayer. Marked by worship. It was there in the darkest moment of his life that Christ turned his heart to his Father. The same with David in his moment of trial, in his moment of suffering, his heart was turned unto God. 
turned unto God in praise and in worship and in prayer. I wonder how many of us can say the same thing when moments of trial and testing come. Where does our heart turn? What pours out of us? What songs do we sing? Are they songs of triumph and joy and expectant faith? Or are they songs of despair? I think in some senses, when we experience a great trial, when we experience a a really, really dark moment, sometimes it can galvanize us. Sometimes it can actually draw the best out of us. I actually believe that some of the hardest trials, the most challenging trials, are those ones that come little by little, like a dripping tap. Trouble, but on a small scale over a long period of time. Those are the kinds of troubles and triumphs that Christians fare a little worse in than those that come all at once. I wonder what pours out of us when we encounter trials and troubles. We can look here to the example, can't we, of David and look to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your greatest victories, I believe, your biggest moments, the most precious pearls that come from your life will be formed through testing times. Those are where the greatest triumphs are won. Those are where the most precious pearls, the most valuable things in your life and mind is in times of trouble. How do you handle it when people turn against you? How will you walk when you experience loss? How will you deal with it when your life is threatened? Jesus' greatest victory, of course, was through the cross. It was through the crucible of suffering. And so those today who preach that suffering is only ever of the devil and God would never want you to suffer a day in your life are denying the very thing that Christ pointed us towards, the way of the cross. The way of the cross. The way of suffering. That's the road you have to share if you follow Christ. What did Christ say to all Christians throughout all ages? If you would come after me, take up your cross and follow me. It was through the cross, through suffering, through death, that came the resurrection. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. Without suffering, there is no no new life. Brothers and sisters, God will bring from your trials the greatest blessings, the most precious pearls that you could ever imagine. Things that could never be produced out of your life in seasons of prosperity will be brought out through seasons of trial. David cries out, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That line is repeated. That is the epitaph of this particular psalm. That's what we're supposed to remember. And what interests me is that David chooses this line. Let your glory be over all the earth. At a time when he was hounded, chased, having to hide for fear of death from Saul. 
His future kingdom seemed a million miles away. His friends had deserted him. I believe here in the cave of Adullam is the moment that these people are just beginning to gather to him. I believe he's alone at the time when he writes Psalm 57. It's a lonely place, but he says, let your glory be over all the earth. Hallelujah. David connects his darkest moments with the glory of God. He connects his deepest struggles with the glory of God, with God's name being exalted. I want you to see this, that when we endure trials, it is for the glory of God. When we endure struggles, it is that His name might be displayed as glorious to the whole world. Showing Him to be the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate saviour, the ultimate redeemer. Think of it like this. Each and every one of your trials, however big or however small, is an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed upon your life. When people speak ill of you, it's an opportunity for the glory of God to be shown. When you experience loss, it is an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed. Nothing is wasted in the life of a Christian. There's no such thing as waste. Everything is utilized by your Father in heaven. Spurgeon said that it's not the healthy oyster that produces the pearl, but the unhealthy one. It's the pearl which has been breached by a grain of sand or an irritant of some kind. It is that oyster that has been breached, that has been attacked, that has been violated in a sense. It is that oyster that produces the pearl and not the perfectly healthy one. Isn't that interesting? This moment here in the cave of Adullam was, was the making of David. It was the making of David. It's when he really got shaped into being the kind of king that he was going to be. He learned things in the cave of Adullam. He could never have learned in the king's house in Jerusalem. He could never have learned around the court of the king. He learned those things in the cave of Adullam. God shapes you in every season. You know, we talked about seasons where there's prosperity when there are Things happening for you and it doesn't seem like you have to work very hard for them. But it's in those seasons of trial that I believe God can do all the more. How many of you can relate to that? It's in those difficult seasons that God seems to do more than He ever did in you in the seasons of prosperity. David was shaped. David was built as a man in the cave of Adullam. This is where he became the king he was to be. David calls our attention to that fact in verse 2. He says, I cry out to you, God most high. In other words, that's El Elyon, one of the divine names of God, El Elyon. I cry out to you, God most high, who fulfills his purpose for me, who fulfills all his purpose for me me. How many of you understand that God has a purpose for your life? God has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for everything in the cosmos. He is sovereign. He has a sovereign plan 
for each individual life. And David saw the pattern of his life. He saw the pattern of his trials even, even the fearful dangers that surrounded him. He saw them as just instruments of God's providence in his life. He saw these trials, these dangers as merely instruments of God's providence, as the fatherly hand of God developing him, placing him in the foundry and making of him the man that God had purposed him to be. David believed in what we call the providence of God. He believed that God was governing all things in his life. That is a Christian thing to believe. David believed that God was working all things for his own glory. We read that in Romans 11, 36. It says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Say all things. All things to him be the glory forever. Again, God's being sovereign over things is always connected to his glory in Scripture. It's not a question which is a merely academic thing in Scripture. I think it was J.I. Packer said that the sovereignty of God in Scripture is never a matter of controversy, but it is a matter of glory to God. God's sovereignty, God's providence is something that we ought to we ought to ascribe to his glory because scripture proclaims it. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things, say all things with me, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, not just some things, not just the pleasant things, but all things work together. How do they work together? In and of themselves, do random events naturally work themselves to the good of your life? No, this is what we call a divine passive in Scripture. It's a divine passive. God is the one who works those things together for good. He is the one. He is the craftsman. He is the architect who builds the building of your life, who puts in place all of the struts, who puts down all the pilings, and he uses the events of life, whether you perceive them as being good or whether you perceive them as being bad. He uses all of them and wastes not a single bolt in order to build the kind of man or woman that he has purposed you to be. Question 27 from the Heidelberg Catechism says, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer is, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Praise be to God. God has a unique purpose for everything in this life. He has a purpose for you. And every now and again, he lets you catch a glimpse of that purpose, doesn't he? Every now and again in your story, 
you'll see God's fingerprints on your life. Sometimes it takes you looking back, doesn't it, into the past. It's hard to see God's activity in your life right now in the present. But when we look back, we can see God's fingerprints. I remember for me, one thing that I can always look back to and say, oh, that was God. That was God's plan. That was God's providence in my life, is my time at Youth for Christ as a teenager when I met Becca. I arrived at the Gap Year. We were doing training down at the university in, in Luton. And within days, I'd made up my mind I wanted to go home. I didn't want to continue. I felt it wasn't for me. I had other things I wanted to return to. So I spoke to the leaders of the course, to, to Gavin and Calver at the time, and I said, I, I want to go home. I, I believe this is wrong, and I want to go back to Wolverhampton. And I was convinced otherwise. Gav convinced me to stay. And actually, what ended up happening was I ended up getting placed in a placement for the whole year with Becca. Now, it was Gavadan's job to choose who went to each placement. We didn't get any choice in the matter. And there were, I don't know how many centres, dozens of centres all over the UK. You could get sent to Scotland or Cornwall or London. And Gavadan shared this with me and Becca later. They said, you know what, we, we went against our better judgment. Neither of us thought that you and Becca should be together. We thought that was a terrible idea. But funnily enough, we prayed about it, and the next morning we woke up and thought, those two have to go together. And here we are, 17 years later, after 17 years of marriage. I know that God moved in his providence in that time, because it was against my better judgment to stay. It was against Gavin Ann's better judgment to keep us in the same place. But God worked and here we are today. How many of you can look back over your life and see God's hand in your life? How many of you can look back and say, oh, he withheld me from that person? You know, I could have ended up going forward with that person, but it would have been a bad idea. Or how many of you can say, there was that chance meeting. God knit me together with that person, and it was just a random chance meeting. They ended up being an important person in my life. God's fingerprints are in your life. And what David did in the cave of Adullam, I believe, is he looked back and he reminded himself of God's providence in his life. He reminded himself of the testimony of God. I want to say this, if you're in a cave moment, if you're in a low ebb of life like David was, bring to remembrance the things that God has done before. Remind yourself of God's hand in your life. Look to his fingerprints. However long you have to look back, whether 5, 10, 20 years, look to where God has acted before in your life and draw strength from it. God will fulfill all his purposes for you. Now David says that he sought refuge. He says, I sought refuge. My soul seeks refuge in you, O God. Within the shadow of your wings, I seek refuge. That word refuge is a beautiful, beautiful word. The dictionary definition is refuge is the state of being. You know that being in refuge is actually a state of being. A state of being. Or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or difficulty. The state of being safe. Or sheltered from pursuit, danger or difficulty is there anything like being safe it could well be yes is there anything like being safe 
to just calm the nervous system down, to feel secure. David was safe within God. He was safe within God. He was at rest. He was in a state of being without fear. David withdrew into the shadow of God's wings. The image is like that of a mother hen. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually uses the same imagery. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Think about it. Think about it. When a chick is gathered under the wings of its mother, two things happen. Number one, that chick is protected from any peril that is around. It's protected. The chick cannot be seen by any danger that could befall it. But think of it the other way. The chick can't see the danger either. The chick is covered by its mother's wings and it can't see the peril. So it can't worry about the peril. So when you are safe within God, you are, number one, protected from the perils that surround you. And number two, you are shielded from even knowing them. You're shielded from worrying about them. You know, one of the greatest challenges in the world today is to try and stay in a place of peace when all you are fed day by day by day is fear, panic. Here's what we want you to be frightened of now. Here's the bleak picture of the future that we're going to paint for you that three months down the line, this could be you, right? The news literally mainlines fear into this nation. But when we are in the refuge of God, we are not only sheltered from the trials, but we are hidden from view and we cannot see them. We're not supposed to see them. Now, we're not saying that we, we just live blindly. We don't worry about what's coming. We don't think about it. But when we're in the refuge of God, there is a degree to which we're not supposed to be looking at the peril around us. We are sheltered by his wings. David says, in the shadow of your wings, I'll take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. Whether that's storms of suffering or trial or whether storms of temptation, we must take refuge within God. Well, how do we do that? How is it that we are to take refuge? What way does David show us in Psalm 57 of taking refuge in God? Well, I believe there's three ways in Psalm 57 that we are taught from God's Word to take refuge in Him. Because the, what David says is active. I want you to see that. He says, I take refuge in you. My soul takes rest in you. It's something that he is doing. It doesn't naturally occur. It's something David is choosing to step into. So we are to actively seek to find refuge in God. How does it happen according to Psalm 57? Firstly, through gratitude. Gratitude is one way that we can secure ourselves in the refuge of God. Remember that David was hidden within a cave... That was, in a sense, his refuge. But he doesn't say, oh God, I find refuge in the cave of Adullam. 
does he? I find refuge in this cave system, O God. No, he attributes his own shelter to God. He attributes his safety to God. He's in a really sticky moment, but he gives thanks for God's shelter of him. In fact, there's a story in the Jewish Talmud that whether this is true or not, I'll let you be the judge. It's not in the word of God, so we don't need to argue about it. But apparently in the Talmud it says that a a spider wove its web over the mouth of the cave so that Saul and his troop did not go in to seek David. And that was where they were hidden. Whether there's any truth in that, I don't know. But what David is saying is that this, this cave is no happy accident. This cave is not just a really like a, a random chance event, but this was given to me by God. When we thank God for his provision for us in the right now, we are seeking and taking refuge in him. A heart of gratitude is a heart that is resting. It's a heart that is safe and secure in God. So if you're finding and feeling unsafe in life, and I, I don't blame anybody here, Right now, it's very easy to feel unsafe in life. Look to whether your heart is in a place of gratitude. Try to cultivate that gratitude for what God has given you in the now, and this will help you to find safety in him. Secondly, what does David do? David prays. David is a man of prayer in his lowest moment. Prayer is another means by which we find refuge in God. He says, I cry out to the Most High, to El Elyon. When we turn to God in prayer, we are taking refuge in Him. And when prayer becomes our habit, that is to say it's something that we do without really thinking about it every day, we are in a consistent place of refuge in a place, in a state of being of peace and rest. So prayer, when formed as a habit, is us taking refuge beneath the wings of the Almighty. I think it was Martin Luther who said, I've got a very busy day today, so I must wake early and spend three to four hours in prayer before I begin my tasks, or something to that effect. It's completely otherworldly. It's completely nonsensical, isn't it, to think like that. And many of us, our first excuse when we're challenged about our prayer life is to point to our calendar and say, but I'm busy. I'm busy. I've got lots going on. But it's in those moments especially, Luther would say, that we must seek God in prayer. Thirdly, what else did David have there in Adullam's cave? He had truth. He had doctrine. He had theology. Doctrine and theology have become dirty words in much of the Western church today. I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus. How do you, find, how do you define Jesus without doctrine? Tell me. David uses one of God's special divine names. He says, I cry out to you, El Elyon, God most high. That means he's saying something true about who God is. He's speaking about one of the attributes of God. He's preaching sound doctrine. He's saying, listen, Saul may be king, he may be high and exalted, but God, you are higher. You are over all. Your court in heaven is above every court here on earth. 
David brought to mind the truth of God. David brought to mind the sound doctrine of Scripture. And he put that doctrine into practice. How many of you understand that doctrine that is not put into practice is dead and worthless? We see in this play out in the nations today. Christians who believe that just simply believing the right things but not actually standing on them is of any use at all. We see in this, in the, sadly, in the Church of England where many bishops will say, well, I'm orthodox in regards to this. And we say, well, why didn't you vote for, the, for it then? Oh, well, you don't understand. You wouldn't understand. It's very complicated. Is it? Is it really? Doctrine that is not put into practice either by prayer or in faith, is worthless. We must put the truth into practice. Put it into prayer. David prayed theology. David sung theology. That's why at this church we sing what is true. We preach God's Word because it is true. And we try to pray God's Word because putting sound theology into practice is dynamite. It helps us retreat within the wings of God so that the storms pass over us. Finally, I finish with this. I pray that we might have the same faith that David had in the cave of Adullam. Listen to this. His prayer, his heart cry in verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Had David saved David? Sorry, had God saved David at this point? No, he was surrounded by his enemies. He was alone. Had God put to shame those who pursued him? No, they were still at large. But David praised these things as though they had already happened by faith. It's as though he steps into the future and looks back into the past and thanks God for what he has done. This, I believe, is another way that we can pray and strengthen ourselves in the Lord is to look back expectantly. It reminds me of the prayer in Daniel 3, the prayer of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. They say this to him. Listen to this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver, to deliver us sorry, from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is able to save. Our God will save. I believe those are prayers of faith that we can follow. Yes, we're to seek God's will, but we can stand in faith and say, God, I thank you that you will deliver me. I thank you that you will save me. How can we pray such confident prayers as though we know the will of God? How can we have such confidence? It's a word, obviously, that comes from the Latin, confide, with faith. How can we pray with such confidence that God will save us, that he will act on our behalf? Isn't that presumptuous? Well, I believe it is not. It's not presumptuous to expect God to deliver you. It's not presumptuous to expect for him to act on your behalf, even if you're in a mess of your own making. How do I know this? I know this because God delivered one man from trouble. God 
delivered one man from a cave far deeper and darker than Adullam's cave. God saved one man by the name of Jesus Christ from the clutches of death in a dark tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And because he raised him from the dead and delivered him from all of his enemies and put them to open shame, 